Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Oh, what a beautiful day. What a glorious day. Today, we are going to enter into the holy place once again and take a look at a new piece of furniture, the table of showbread. And many years ago, when I learned about the tabernacle, I was introduced to it by this sweet elderly lady. She was in her 80s at the time, and I think she had made uh, like her adulthood had been a study of the tabernacle. She presented it to us from her beloved King James, and so I learned it in the King James. Therefore, when you see the word showbread, I spell it with an E-W because that's how it is in King James, but O-W is also correct, so I just want to say that because as the slides go by, I think it's spelled with an E-W there. So we are going to come to the Lord's table, the table of showbread, and on your handouts, you have that the introductory information regarding the building of this particular piece of furniture and the moving of. The location of the table of showbread is in the holy place on the north wall. And I'm going to make mention of the north wall in a few moments. So keep your antenna, antenna up for that. Uh, it is made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. And also in your handout, in that section called materials, you might want to add the references that cover the making of the bread for the table of showbread. The materials for the table would include the bread. So in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, cover the details for the table of showbread the offering that was laid on it. And we'll come back to that and read that portion of scripture here in just a moment, but for your notes. Now, it's also called in other parts of scripture, besides the different spelling between showbread, uh, it's called the bread of the presence in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2, the bread of the presence. The presence of the Lord is in this place. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2. It is also called the hallowed bread in 1 Samuel 21, 6. The hallowed bread. And by any other name, it is unleavened bread. And we will discuss that here in a moment as well. Also, for your notes, there are the dimensions we will read about the cubits, but I will give them to you in feet so that you have a rough idea how big this table was. It was roughly three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and about two and a quarter feet high. So it is a low table. In that part of the world, and even up through Jesus' day, they didn't sit at a table with chairs. They reclined on cushions on the floor, so the tables were very low. And I think you can imagine if you were invited to dine at the table, having to sit down. It's a place of humility, but it's also a place of intimacy, because as you would recline on the table, you would be very near the person next to you. So it's a very intimate setting. A very small table, humble, except for the fact that it's covered in solid gold. 
Now, as we get ready here to read the instructions for the building in Exodus 25, that's where we're going to head first. Exodus 25, we'll start in verse 23, reading the instructions. And there are a few vocabulary things I'd like to pull out. First of all, the word that is used here for the table itself it's a, that is a Hebrew word that is specifically used for a king's table, a table for sacred or private use. So we know just by the uh, Hebrew language that this is a very special, very special piece of furniture. Also, as we continue to read, there are some decorative elements. You will see the word border. That could also be translated crown. And the word rim. And the rim, Hebrew word, can also be translated stronghold. So as we read it, I may just change those words from border and rim to crown and stronghold. All righty? So Exodus chapter 25, verse 23, we read, God's instructions to Moses. You shall make a table, a king's table, a table for sacred or private use is what that could say. A table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold crown around it. You shall make for it a stronghold of a handbreadth around it. And you shall make a gold crown for the stronghold around it. You shall make four rings of gold for it and put uh, rings on the four corners which are on its four feet. Verse 27, the rings shall be close to, close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. So we see some repeated elements, things we have seen in previous studies. For example, the acacia wood. Acacia wood overlaid with gold here. The last time we saw it was outside at the altar of sacrifice. And acacia wood is a picture of Christ's humanity. At the altar of sacrifice, his humanity wrapped in judgment. Here we see his humanity wrapped in deity, this pure, refined gold. And gold is refined by fire. We've touched on that in the past too. It's a process that requires ever-increasing intensity of heat. Gold is placed in a crucible that can withstand great heat. And then the fire is brought to bear. And it begins the work of purification. Because gold is heavier than most of the uh, dross that it contains, that is within it, gold will sink and the dross will rise. And the goldsmith skims the dross off the top and then more fire is added. And the process is repeated over and over again ever-increasing intensity with the dross rising. And this process is not done until the goldsmith can see his reflection in the purified gold. And this is a picture for us of both Jesus Christ through the fire of crucifixion. But it's a picture of you and of me as well. Jesus is the crucible. He holds us in his hand. 
He will never let the flame of fire consume us, but he does allow the flame of fire to do the work of purification in our lives. But one thing about the goldsmith, he can never take his eye off the gold. And he never takes his eye off you. He is ever watchful of you. He will not permit any of his children to be consumed in the flame. In fact, we have this promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure. He will allow the fire to do its work, but he will always be holding you in the palm of his hand. And that makes me think of that detail in the description of building the table. A hand breadth, every other piece of furniture in the tabernacle, cubits, that's the only measurement that God uses. And then suddenly we get this interesting detail of a hand breadth. Do you see what I see? God has his hand around the entire perimeter of the table. He has his hand under the entire perimeter of your life. He carries you in the palm of his hand. And then we know from John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, he promises, I will give you eternal life. And then he confirms by saying, you are never going to perish. No one, in fact, is ever going to snatch you out of my hand. And that's not all. He goes on to say, my father who has given you to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch you out of the father's hand. Do you see two hands there? It's a double rim, just like we read on the table, a double stronghold of protection. The son and the father hold us safe and secure, and he will never let us go. And no one, no one, not even you, can snatch you out of his hand. You are safe. I love that picture that we get from this table. Leviticus chapter 24 you have that in your notes. It's, this is where we're going to read about the details on the table. So if you will turn there, Leviticus 24, we'll read verses 5 through 8. And you will see a few things that are added besides bread to the table. At some point along the line of the ministry in the tabernacle, wine was added to the table as well. We do not see that here. We also learn from other passages that the bread is specifically unleavened. But here we read verses 5 through 8, Leviticus chapter 24. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. Verse 7. You shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be a memorial portion for the bread even an offering by fire to the lord every sabbath day he shall set it in order before the lord continually it is an everlasting covenant for the sons of israel leaven in scripture is symbolic of sin we see that in several places in the New Testament. For your notes, Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus shares the parable of a woman. It's a kingdom parable. He says, the kingdom is like 
a woman, beware women, who hid leaven in three measures of meal. Three measures of meal is the fellowship offering. And if a woman is hiding leaven in it, that means that a woman will be introducing sin into the church. And I don't know if you have seen that, but I sure have. And I need to look in the mirror and make sure it's not me. Jesus said this is one of the things that will happen in the kingdom age. So leaven, symbolic of sin, beware. Also, he tells the, Pharise uh, the um, disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 16. And then right out loud, where you can't miss it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes that we are to clean out the old leaven of malice and wickedness so that we are then able to celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven is a symbol of sin, and only unleavened bread was allowed on the table. Jesus Christ is the sinless Lamb of God, and this bread is a picture of Jesus. You will see more details on that as we continue to go. You could say that Jesus himself is when we speak of the bread of life, we could say the unleavened bread of life. Frankincense that we saw introduced here is symbolic of the priesthood. It was incorporated with the bread. It's either sprinkled on the table or set in containers on the table or possibly even baked into the bread. The scholars are not sure how that how it happens, but it is definitely present at the table as a perpetual part of the offering of the unleavened bread. And all of that points to the office of high priest that our Savior holds even to this day. Next week, we will see him at the altar of incense where he ever liveth to make intercession for us. But here at the table, we see him inviting us to come and have communion and fellowship with him, with our great high priest. The table had those 12 loaves, and they were interesting. The process of baking them created a very interesting-looking loaf, unleavened so they did not rise. But having baked them in a fire, it created a loaf that was pierced and striped. And that may sound familiar to you. We'll come back to that as well. But 12 loaves, one for each of the 12 tribes, give us this day our daily bread. It's provision for all. No tribe is left out. There will be ample provision for everyone. Fresh loaves made of fine flour were to be placed on the table each week on the Sabbath day. And then when new bread was brought in, the old bread was taken and eaten by the priests. It was their portion. Leviticus chapter 24 verse 9 says that they shall eat it in a holy place. This is a very holy sacrifice that is happening here, a service of worship that is taking place. And we are to treat these things as holy unto the Lord. And the priests were to eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. 
There is one instance that I have found in scripture of a tremendous misuse, if you will, of the table of showbread and the bread specifically. And David is the guilty party here. You have it in your handout written down, but for your, um, to know where we're headed, it's 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And then the story picks up again in 1 Samuel 22. It should be pre-printed there on your notes for you. In this story, you find that David is fleeing from the irrationally, insanely angry king Saul. And by, he goes by way of this little city called Nob. And at that time, the tabernacle was camped at Nob. And David, of course, was... He just fled, no preparation of any kind. And so he comes to the priest begging bread. But he does it in a very deceptive way by saying he was on a mission for the king. And so the priest says, we don't have any bread other than the hallowed bread. And David said, give it to me. I need to have it. So the priest gave it to him. Then he says, do you have a weapon around here? They happen to have the sword of Goliath. So he gave him the sword of Goliath and the hallowed bread and off David went. Now, there was one man there who happened to see and hear all of this, and he went back and told Saul. And insane retribution ensues. Saul goes and kills every one of the priests but one, and every man, woman, child, and infant in the city of Nob. He just slaughters them all. And this one man, this one priest escapes, and he goes and finds David, and he tells him what has happened, and he seeks refuge there with David and receives it with his newly formed ragtag army. And Jesus calls attention to this story in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. He does not condone David's actions, but he uses this story to teach us that human need is greater than the law. That is, that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law. But what would have happened if David had just told the truth? How many lives would have been spared? His sin caused a great deal of trouble and slaughter. I don't know if any of you all have ever committed any kind of sin that got you in a lot of trouble. Anybody in here but me? And most of the time that my sin has gotten me in trouble, it has been involved a lie has been involved, that I have not told the truth in some way. And the Lord has taught me a mighty thing about being upfront all the time. And I see it played out here in this story. What might have happened had David just told the truth? I'm running for my life. Saul is trying to kill me. We will never know. But what we do know is that he shows us that we all need a savior. Everybody from the king on down needs a savior. And Jesus knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. Remember, he's holding you in the palm of his hand. He is taking the brunt of the fire for you so that the flames don't really come in contact with you. You just get the residual heat. He took the flames of fire. And whether you need to be rescued from serious trouble or it's your daily provision of bread, whatever kind of trouble that you are in, the Savior knows what you need every single day. Psalm 103, verse 14, he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Psalm 103, verse 14. And he knows, because he knows, we're going to get in trouble. In troublous times, where would you like to be? And that is where we find the interesting detail that the table of showbread is located on the north wall. 
Trouble often came to the nation Israel. Enemies wanting to attack Jerusalem had to attack from the north. Because of the geography and the topography of the land, even if you lived down south and wanted to attack, you had to travel up and drop down on the city of Jerusalem from the north. And so that bred a proverb within the Hebrew mind, simply, trouble comes from the north. And the Lord even confirms it in two passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 14, and in chapter 4, Verse 6, Jeremiah 1, 14, and 4, verse 6. The Lord said to me, writes Jeremiah, out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. Lift up a standard toward Zion. Seek refuge, but do not, oh, excuse me. Seek refuge, do not stand still, for I, the Lord is declaring, I am bringing evil from the north. A great destruction. The table of showbread is on the northern wall in that tabernacle. It does not give us a picture of trouble, but protection and provision from it. And so as you entered into the tabernacle, having come by way of the altar of sacrifice, because you cannot get in to the place of service and fellowship unless you have first stopped outside and accepted that sacrifice for your sin, you enter into this holy place. And here, the golden light of the lampstand is washing over this beautifully set table, everything of pure gold, and the unleavened bread of fellowship and communion there laid out for you, protection provision, and fellowship, all pictured in this beautiful table. Now imagine if you were having, uh, if you received an invitation from someone to come to their house for dinner, and you walked in, and here was a table laden with all of your favorite food. What is your expectation? To be invited to sit and dine, to have fellowship with your host. That's exactly what you see when you come into the holy place, to an invitation to recline, to relax, to rest, to be provided for, to enjoy this time of fellowship. We are invited to come freely to the table and be satisfied. But it is more than give us this day our daily bread. It's partaking of the bread of life. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can come away from communion with him revived and inspired. Can you imagine what the body of Christ would be like if we, each individually and as a group, gave as much attention to eternal things as we did to what we were going to eat next? How different would this world be? How different would my individual life be? Revive us, Lord. Inspire us every day at your table. And he does. Turn to John chapter 6. This is quite a lengthy chapter. And I do pray that as you go home today and look over your notes and prayerfully consider all that the Lord has given us, you will read this entire chapter. It's amazing. Jesus is going to feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two little fish. If I, here I need to find chapter, John. It's in here somewhere. John chapter 6. We are going to look at verse 27, and then we're going to drop down into 51. Jesus says, 
Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. There's a promise from the Lord. He will give you this food that does not perish, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now, there is one other example. Hold your place here. One other example from the Old Testament besides the table of showbread that involves bread. Does anybody know what it might be? Certain product that rained down every day in the desert from manna. Do you know God never calls it manna unless he's quoting his wayward children? God always calls it the bread of heaven. The bread of heaven was provided miraculously for the wandering Israelites for 40 years. But you had to go gather your own. No one could gather for you. Jesus Christ is my savior. Nobody could do that for me. I had to make that decision on my own. And so what we see here in John chapter 6, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, he's going to remind them of the manna. And then he's going to call himself the very bread of heaven. He uses this everyday thing, eating, to describe this greater spiritual thing. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now the Hebrews are going, the Jews are going to argue with him a little bit and he will come back. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. There you have that reference back to the golden lampstand. Do you see it? You abide in him, hammered of one piece with him, and I in him. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And this is just on the heels of him having touched every mouthful of bread that they had just filled themselves with. It was a picture of him giving of himself to everyone. He could have provided bread to people who refused to eat it. But those who took and eat to those people, he is now giving this great teaching. I am the bread of heaven, he says. And when he gave this hard word here, many of those people with very full stomachs, his disciples, the Bible calls them, turned and walked away. It was too hard for them. They wanted a king who would feed them like they had just eaten every day. And Jesus is not giving them what they want. So they turned and walked away. What must it have been like for him to stand there on that day and watch the backs of how many dozens, hundreds receding across the landscape? And I can just see him watching them disappearing and saying to the 12 who remained, do you all want to leave me too? It breaks my heart. And then Peter, God love him. I so identify with Peter. 
and Jonah, but that's a whole nother story. Here, Peter has one of his brilliant, shining moments. Surely the spirit of the Lord spoke through him here. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then he says this brilliant thing. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that declaration. You remember if you've read John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is that living word. And in order to have communion with God, Jeremiah is going to help us understand the eating of the word of God. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, he says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy words became for me the joy and delight of my heart. Oh, come to the table, y'all. The Lord has opened his doors wide, and he wants us to come and enjoy fellowship with him. Psalm 119, that psalm of the labor, verse 103 says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 4 of Matthew 4, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In every tiny detail of this tabernacle, you will see a picture of Jesus Christ tortured and brutalized. Here at the table, you see the acacia wood that had to be cut down out of the land of the living and hammered into form. Then the gold refined by fire placed over. Then you have the bread. The wheat had to be ground exceedingly fine in order to make the bread as required. And the frankincense, you get that by scraping, incising the bark of a tree and then scraping off the sap, pulverizing what you receive from that oozing and then setting fire to it in order to release its aroma. Every single piece points to the torture and the suffering that Jesus endured to become the bread of heaven, that we may eat, that we may taste of him and be satisfied. The fall of man was caused by eating something he should not. And the remedy for the sin of the world is to eat something that he should, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Isaiah 53, 5, picture that bread pierced through and striped. He was pierced through for our, and our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his stripes we are healed. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. And once you have tasted of the bread of life, you will never be satisfied anywhere else. You can try, but nothing will satisfy once you have truly tasted the bread of life. And what we are to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before him, Sometimes I wonder if he pictured hanging from the cross your face and mine, the joy that was set before him. He has invited us to his table. 
because we have received all that we need to enter boldly into this holy place, to recline with him, to sit with him and enjoy, not just give us this day our daily bread, but give us this day, Lord, our daily manna, the bread of life, the living word of the living God. Remember the instructions to the Levitical priests. They shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy from the Lord's offering by fire for you. Let's come to the table of the Lord and share this time of communion together. If the worship team will come forward now and the ladies will come, I believe we would like Sharon. Please come forward. And Sharon is going to lead us now in this time of communion. We are going to pass the elements. And as you receive, just hold on to them until everyone has been served. And Sharon will give you instructions to continue on. And God bless you, ladies. What a sweet time of fellowship this will be to be able to share the table of the Lord together. I remember the first time that I took communion. I was raised in the Lutheran faith in the suburbs of Chicago. Sadly, there's not a lot I remember about my early church going, but I do remember making my confirmation. Now, making your confirmation allowed you to partake of the Lord's Supper with other church members. There was a lot of preparation before you could share in the elements. Every Saturday morning for two years, I took confirmation classes while most of my 11 and 12-year-old friends were uh, watching um, Mighty Mouse Save the Day or the latest antics of the Jetson household. I was sitting in a classroom at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church going through confirmation classes, memorizing the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, what they mean, and a lot more. The day of our confirmation ceremony came. I remember it well with my beauty shop ringlet hairdo and my white dress with the, the lace uh, right in the front there, ruffle down the front, and my white robe. We were told to examine our hearts before we took the elements and then pray a prayer of thanksgiving afterwards. It was a solemn occasion. It was like a rite of passage. I had done what was necessary. I had memorized the correct passages. I had answered the questions correctly to know the importance of the Lord's Supper and was considered a church member and able to take communion from that day on. Quite the honor. Can you remember the first time you took communion? Think a second. This is the first time I have ever been asked to lead communion. And I must say, it is quite an honor. I'm sure as most of us are familiar with uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verses, the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks. Well, the words preceding these verses are almost always omitted. But listen to what they are. Paul states, for I have received of the Lord, that which also I delivered to you. In studying to present this little talk, I realized that in a similar manner as Moses received the plans for the tabernacle from the Lord, 
Paul received instructions for celebrating the Lord's Supper from the Lord. I wonder how. Did the Lord allow Paul to peer into the past and see the upper room and all that occurred that night of betrayal? Or did Jesus give him the information in a dream or a vision? After all, Paul was not in the upper room. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, I wonder where he was and what he was doing. Let's imagine for a moment what Paul would have seen if he was indeed given a glimpse into the night. First of all, Paul would have seen Jesus wash the disciples' feet. An unheard of thing. A disgustingly low act of service. Paul would have heard Jesus say, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. The only place in scripture where Jesus said he gave them an example. He would watch as the group of men shared the Passover supper in remembrance of the salvation that occurred when the angel of death swept through the homes of Egypt many years earlier. And while they were eating the meal, Paul would have, had, would have witnessed Jesus taking a portion of the unleavened bread and after giving thanks, breaking the bread and giving it to his disciples and saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. No doubt Paul would have watched the disciples Look at Jesus in confusion, his body broken for them. Nothing was broken at that moment. J. Vernon McGee says, the shadow of the cross hung over the upper room that night. Jesus knew. Paul knew. But the disciples didn't know what awaited the Son of God in the hours to come. We can only imagine with the help of visual aids like the movie, The Passion of the Christ, we can only imagine what they saw, what they heard, what Jesus did for us. Let's pause for a moment. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your perfect body broken for us. We give you thanks and we remember. Let's eat the bread together. Still peering into the past, Paul would have watched as Jesus took a cup after the supper. Once again, gave thanks to the Father, take a drink himself, and then give it to the disciples and watch as they all drank from it. Again, not realizing the meaning of the action. Then Jesus spoke and said, this cup is the new covenant, not the old covenant made with Moses, the new covenant, the covenant in my blood 
poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9 tells us all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow. There is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the lamb. The blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. Do this, Jesus said, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, thank you so much for what you endured for us. May we never take it for granted what you did that night. You purchased us, your church, with your precious blood. You bought us back with the riches of your amazing grace. Thank you. We take this cup now in remembrance of you. Let's drink. Oswald Chambers in the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, speaks of broken bread and poured out wine. Jesus was broken bread and poured out wine for us. Paul was broken bread and poured out wine for his Savior. Oh, that we, we would be willing to be broken and poured out for our Savior and his children as well. Now let us go, ladies, and continue to adore him. Amen.